0: Good afternoon, Team KULAK community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I am remain your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the KULAK Center, and we welcome back Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia subject matter expert. Fulfilling our promise of higher tempo, I'll bring you another one here just within a week of the last one. And as, as things seem to go sometimes, it's been another sort of newsy week, so... Um, we have a few things to cover here and we're going to uh, we'll start with the one that was sort of just after our previous episode where there were a number of notable um, uh, strikes or explosions among Russian logistical areas. Um, the The most striking ones were uh, there was an oil depot or oil storage facility in Crimea that had uh, looked like it took significant damage and was burning for quite a while. But there have been some attacks on other um Oil, oil depots or oil storage areas as well as some of Russia's mobility uh, mobility hubs and and lines of communication uh, such as railways so uh, you've all welcome back we'll go right into it um, so we, we know that there, there have been periodic attacks of this this type before and they are very photogenic if you will um, oil burning mm-hmm. always makes for a good picture but given the you know going after fuel and um, lines of communication for movement. Uh, what do you think this indicates in terms of of why these targets are getting struck now? So it was a pleasure to be on
1: with you, uh, Ian. Uh, certainly, when we started to see the attacks on uh, rail lines and 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 oil depots, uh, it was reminiscent of what was what were the shaping operations prior to uh, the last counteroffensive, the one um, that was mooted for uh, Gerson and in the south of the country. And instead, there was a surprise attack uh, on on Kharkiv Oblast, and you know everyone was looking south. They went north, and they achieved tremendous success in terms of taking back territory um, in in Ukraine's north uh, east. So it suggests perhaps the same thing is happening right now. We've been talking about the forthcoming counteroffensives for I think several months at this point, but perhaps you know for the most dangerous words in the English language, you know this time is different. Um, You know, this might be one of those uh, right now, because the Ukrainians are going after rail lines. If they're going after fuel depots, it doesn't mean that Russia will run out of rail lines or they'll run out of oil. You know, I think, you know, I think we both think that Russia has plenty of those. But it does mean that the amount of time it takes to uh, repair those rail lines, the amount of time it takes to, you know, bring in new oil infrastructure, that will take some time. And that might be in effect. What we're observing are the shaping operations before the next counteroffensive. And really, what this could very well be is that we know on you know a different part of the conversations we've had for the last several months that there's what 15 to 20 brigades that have been training um, in Germany. Um, I think in the United States and you know basically elsewhere uh, in in NATO countries, all of those troops. That have been training abroad on basically the donated equipment have not yet entered the fight so what we may be observing is that this is the one and so ostensibly if the counteroffensive offensive begins and, th- and we'll talk about bakhmut and you know the travails around that right now it could very well be that the ukrainians will start probing see where the russians do or do not defend and basically either go with you know whatever is their plan a or just you know try to seize opportunities and and just Get the counteroffensive going. Where they could go, obviously, you know, we've been talking about the same things for a long time here, which is um, basically cutting off the land bridge to Crimea, going after the south, uh, you know, going to Melitopol and severing basically the the connection of Rostov uh, in Russia's south uh, to Crimea. They're not too far away, as it were, from Donetsk uh, city center. There's lots of things that they could go after. And that seems to be part of, you know, the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian basically strategy at this point is make believe that they can go anywhere as well as everywhere.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, there's been a, a fair amount of speculation, you know, online in terms of what direction we take. And I think it, I don't think it's fair to really sort of speculate because we don't, we just don't know. You know, as you said, they may just poke for holes, and if they find one, go after it. You know, kind of regardless of whether it's close to a specific city or not, but. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I said, I think the, um, the, the targets indicate a, uh, it, it makes it harder to, uh, to respond if you don't have gas and you don't have no, no way to move your reinforcements. And I think they're, they're sort of mutually reinforcing things, right? Like, uh, you know, as you said, the rails, rails can be repaired relatively quickly. You know, we, you know, American soldiers, you know, were good at rail repair back in the civil war. Right. So it's not mm-hmm. a, not a technically complex thing. Um but looking at the oil like those oil storage areas i imagine would be harder to repair um especially uh, harder to repair and then resupply if you if you pre-stage a whole lot of stuff there um which means to give you know russian mechanized forces that that gas to go now it's got to come on rail and then if you go on the rail lines that just got a lot harder so uh, a mutually reinforcing problem potentially so certainly like it it just means that if this is the basically the strategy that they're going after
1: again russia has plenty of you know rail repair technology um but how much can they basically bring to those areas quickly they have plenty of oil but how much of the stuff can they bring quickly and it means that if the ukrainians do start their counteroffensive all the reinforcements that russia has to then bring in have to come from you know much farther away and so it not only slows everything down, but it helps identify the Russian, um, you know, supply lines that, you know, Ukraine still has HIMARS. In the last several um, tranches of military support uh, that the United States has given to Ukraine, basically like HIMARS and related um, items, re- related, uh, you know, missiles, rockets, things of that nature, the munitions, they've been in every single one of those uh, tranches. So it could very well be that what the Ukrainians are trying to do right now is really identify inter- like, during the time of a crisis, where is Russia bringing the stuff? How is it bringing the stuff? And basically trying to attack Russia, you know, deeper and deeper um, into Russia itself in order to just confound um, the Russian armed forces as well as creating the sense of panic, you know, amongst the, the the Russian troops and to whatever extent the Russian public is interested. Uh, you know, amongst the the broader Russian society,
0: right? And I think this is a great segue into point number two that we were going to hit today. Um, speaking of striking deeper into Russia, maybe only a couple of days ago, there was some very dramatic um, footage coming from some uh, Russian security cameras pointed at the Kremlin. You know, which is a center of Russian political power, military decision making areas. You know, offices for those in charge, and we saw. Um, uh, it got hit by a drone, or at least the the story is that it got hit by a drone. Because there there are a number of stories about what may have happened. But the point was, something on camera was caught flying in the roof of the Kremlin, and there was an explosion of fire, and uh, it looked like there there were some some flames and debris on the roof there. And there have been all kinds of competing theories about what if it was a drone. You know, who launched it? Why would they? What's the motivation? And what would the various parties stand to gain from it? I could go a number of different ways with it, but um, as, you, as you mentioned, when we started here uh, recording, there's potentially sort of three theories uh, at work here. So what are they and what, what are the implications of, of each one, if, if that's the one that winds up being true or not, which we may never know.
1: So we, we should also mention one of the, the key little uh,
0: details there is that,
1: so Kremlin, it just means like, fortress. So like lots of cities have Kremlins. But when we think of the Kremlin, this is the, the medieval fortress that uh the Germans attacked in the Second War, the uh Napoleonic forces uh tried to blow up. Um, but they had, you know, the the relative misfortune uh, you know, for their for their purposes, of it was quite rainy when they were trying to like blow everything up. And their their artillery uh just got too wet to be of much use. So we have evidence of you know uh, foreigners attacking the um, the Kremlin before the other thing that is sort of like the detail that will maybe help explain some of this is that the Kremlin is a fortress there are you know um churches inside of it going back you know several centuries there's different courtyards there's different contemporary government buildings there's different palaces inside there's the state armory which is now a museum that holds like Russia's treasures so It's in one sense, both key decision-making center, but it's also like lots of tourist stuff is inside. Putin does not live there. Uh, The last, I think, Soviet leader to live inside the Kremlin, obviously I could be wrong, but I think the last person to sort of like sleep there on like a nightly basis or on a consistent basis um, was Stalin. So uh, Putin actually lives outside of Moscow. And he only comes into the Kremlin. He only comes into Moscow if there's some sort of specific event that requires his presence. One of the things that one of the few things that Putin as just like, you know, retail street level politician has done to sort of like improve the lives of Muscovites is that he doesn't actually go into the Kremlin very often. Because when he, whenever he travels, um, that's a huge security bubble that, uh, that he requires, you know, because he's a very scared man. And so he basically can single-handedly destroy Moscow traffic. He is the one-man traffic jam. So he doesn't often go there, and when he does go there, he goes there by helicopter. So part of what the Russian, you know, um, official explanation is that this was an assassination attempt by the Ukrainians. And they say it was an assassination attempt because, you know, Kremlin, Putin, etc., although that's laughable, but the thing that basically perhaps points to the Ukrainians, and we'll go through all the theories in just a moment, is that whoever was controlling these drones, which made some sort of small but highly symbolic attack, is that they attacked the flagpole of uh, the Russian, of basically the Kremlin. So symbol of Russian power and the symbol of the Russian state, they're attacking the flagpole. I mean, you can imagine if someone attacked the flagpole outside the White House, that's the most important flagpole in a certain sense in the country so the first sort of theory is that this was the ukrainians and perhaps we can create a story or you know construct a scenario in which the ukrainians are basically doing their shaping operations and part of that is you know this is a a kinetic action but one meant to create basically information um overload it means that the Russian state and Russian armed forces look like morons because they can't basically control the airspace around the most important thing in the entire country. Um, it also shows that Ukraine can strike literally into the heart of the Russian state. And that in essence, this in the days leading up to the um, you know May 9th Victory Day Parade, it shows that even Red Square, which is right beside the Kremlin, which is where the parade takes place, and the Kremlin itself, are unsafe places, and that this refers to, you know, just like the darkest chapters of uh, Russian history. So theory one, uh, the Ukrainians, for for the cost of a mere several uh, drones, were able to create true pandemonium in basically Russia's political elite. We've also seen on Russian news over the last couple of days is that there hasn't been like any uh showing like any sort of like display of the actual drone footage it's all over the internet but it's not on tv yet um so that could very well be that the russian state doesn't actually want to show we cannot protect you know even the airspace around the kremlin theory number two this was a false flag uh attempt by uh the russian state and this is a false flag attempt by the russian state you know so i obviously with uh putin's like let's say knowledge and approval Which has, you know, the, you know, because Putin probably helped, you know, oversaw the bombing of several apartment buildings in Moscow in 1999 uh, that helped create war fever against Chechnya, which allowed him to create much more of a a public profile for himself and which essentially created a societal wide desire for uh, revenge. And in this theory, there's a lot of basically like hard fighting to come. There's a lot of bad news to come. There's going to be unfavorable casualty figures at some point that get leaked. There is a second mobilization that'll come, uh, that'll be announced, and so in order to justify this bad news, they need to have basically a threat to the level of the um, that, that justifies basically another mobilization. We also had uh, Dmitry Peskov, who is the press secretary of the president uh, Putin, who said that it was the Americans behind this, and so this creates the idea that you know, if we're fighting against an opponent as formidable as the Americans, we need all hands on deck. That's basically like the false flag theory. And in this theory, the idea of basically, we, we know we know from public opinion polling that the sharpest drop in public opinion, like against Putin over the past like year plus since this war started um, was around the mobilization in September uh, of last year. That's the, really the only thing that actually forced russian society to pay attention to the special military operation this is like lots of other societies who are fighting unpopular wars as soon as people like realize that things are not going well they do their utmost to tune this out so uh, needs to be something that uh the phrase justification for it third sort of like and then there is the uh the idea that this is the security services, and here uh, I'm reading the telegram. Two different theories, and really, both of these are mildly insane. So one is basically the security services doing Putin's knowledge in order to create concentration in Putin's mind that if he doesn't sort of get it together and really get the uh, the war machine going, he's going to lose the war, and that this is basically a wake up call from the security services directly to Putin. The fourth theory, and is the, the most outlandish, but let's throw it out there into the mix, is that this is done by uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin in order to basically demonstrate much more explicitly the incompetence of his rivals from the Ministry of Defense and Russian Armed Forces, that he's the one who's able to show you know, Putin that he can do anything. And if he doesn't get you know his way which is basically like more our ar- artillery uh more basically like military support um you know the the soldiers will leave bakhmut they'll go uh northwest and they'll be marching on moscow soon enough so take it or leave it those are basically the four uh horsemen of the dumbest apocalypse uh yet
0: four horsemen of the dumbest apocalypse i uh i'm gonna have to consider that as a working title for this episode yeah although we have we have a couple options other options that we can maybe use but the bonkers thing about this is like there's potentially a lot a logic to any, any one of them and which you know in the absence of any further evidence it's it's really hard to sort of untangle what it might be um you know on on following the Ukrainian line is you know do they have the capability probably you know probably they've executed long range, you know, against some of those oil storage areas we've talked about, um, you know, or, or even the, uh, the, the, the drone boats, when they did that, one of their attacks into Crimea with that, right? Like they can do long range, un, unmanned, uncrewed uh, devices. We know that they can do that. Um, you know, the, the, biggest question I think on that would be would in, injecting that level of chaos into, uh, into society be worth potentially, Raising questions uh, on Western capitals, I mean possibly you know most especially the u s is does it look like they're striking a you know military target outside their own borders, which they've always said that they won't do? would it would it be worth it to them to do that? I don't know, because it definitely makes Russian air defense look like it's not doing at all anything, um, especially since we all we talked about many uh, many months ago the pants here on top of the building, on top of the of defense, right? like, That was a very visible um we are taking measures to defend you from those uh those evil ukrainians and look they just went right past it so um not for the first time we've been asking what air defense doing yes and it seems that even in it even in what is probably i think you characterized it before is one of the densest air defense zones probably in certainly in russia possibly around the world yeah you could still get a couple of drones in there um past all those layers of air defense yeah i mean as for the other theories heaven only knows but the uh so, no, it's- and we,
1: we should note on on this point is that the ukrainians like in previous attacks like previous like really high profile attacks um they've had wink wink nudge nudge we totally didn't do this like you know you know smoking is dangerous like for your health Especially when you're by a high value military target. For this, they did say um, they like Zelensky on down denied responsibility. That doesn't really mean anything because certainly like President Biden and other European leaders have told them, you know, stick to liberation of your territory, do not strike inside of Russia. But at the same time, this is pretty wild. Like this basically gets Russian decision making it basically throws a wrench into into all of it because they have to figure out how do we explain away just like an abject failure and abject humiliation they mean this basically not since like soviet times when a west german teenager flew a cessna you know and landed on red square that led gorbachev to actually fire um you know several of his top like um military people uh and in Basically, like the the descriptions that I've read about this, like the scene where he was firing basically like the, you know, the Soviet marshal who was in charge of like air defense. Um, He screamed at them this with like a lot more swearing. This effing kid landed on Red Square. Radar has been invented since the 1930s. So even with like, you know, the technology of the day, um, the Soviets weren't able to protect against this. They're not able to protect against basically like drones. Uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, commanded by the Ukrainians. So,
0: yeah, yeah and as, as you as you say that, I was like, OK, flipping the coin, though, we, you know, did Putin do this on his own? Because, as you mentioned, he has no compunction whatsoever about killing his own people or arranging things if he thinks that there's some advantage to be gained. And maybe this is a way to like if you wanted to fire a bunch of generals, but you didn't really have a good reason. Hey, you got a great reason now to fire them because air, it, what air defense was doing was nothing. So maybe if they were, if he didn't think he had sort of the the support, you make them look bad, and then it's a lot easier to fire them. Um, but then that also potentially chains into like the security service or or Prigozhin, and this is you know has just going in circles. Like any any one of these things, you could follow. Uh, there's a path to it. But I, I guess speaking of Prigozhin, um yeah. we can shift to him. And unless you wanted to talk anything more about the the drone and the Kremlin, no, I mean
1: the. So this is the thing, and we'll, we'll sort of, like, as we move into Perigosian, you know, we always have two different images of, like, power in Russia. Um, one is that Putin is, like, this dictator. He, he's basically whatever he wants. Like, he points a finger, people scurry. Um, but we also have the, Im- you know, it's sort of, like, any time you see, like, uh, Putin looking stern and, you know, whatever sort of photograph. But we also, like, can see that there are politics at the highest level. And the idea that lots of people could have an interest in doing something and could plausibly do it indicates that the amount of control that Putin has in terms of being able to balance all the different factions surrounding him may not be as strong as it was, and it may not be as strong as it was because all those different factions might have their own different assessment. Of basically what's happening in the conflict right now and how the future might look. All of this is to say, Putin definitely has like one hundred percent control of basically like the formal state apparatus. But are people starting to think? Are there different opportunities? Are there different dangers that come from, uh, you know, Russia perhaps observing that the counter that basically Russia's offensive over the winter effectively did nothing, that Ukrainian counteroffensive is coming, and certainly. At least we don't know how it's going to go because we can't predict the future. But we do know, as we've discussed, the Ukrainians are going to bring a lot of firepower to this. And they've been training for this and this only for quite a while now. So in essence, this could be a lot of people trying to think, how do we get ahead, politically speaking, of what's about to happen on the battlefield? And that is where I think Mr. Prigozhin and his, uh, his YouTube uh, starring turn over the last 24 hours uh, comes in.
0: Yeah, so let, let's launch into that then. Um, so there've been, um, I guess, for I, I would I see not even on social media, these videos have made you know they've been making you know sort of front page, you know, top of the web page headlines on you know major news organizations. And there's there's a couple out there, and I don't I'm not sure what the chronology of it was, I and mean, you can you can probably get us into that. But you know, there was one video, is a relatively long one, where uh, Prigozhin standing in front of some of his some of the boys from the Wagner group. He was basically saying, like, we've come and we've done all the heavy lifting in this area because we were asked to, but we've been starved of resources um, to the point where we, like, our men are dying for no reason, and uh, we're going to leave Bakhmut. Like, we'll wait until May 9th after Victory Day so we don't embarrass the motherland, right? But after that, we just don't, you've given us nothing to accomplish the mission, so we're going to go until we're called on again to come in and save the day kind of thing. Um, And then there was a shorter one of him uh dropping you know the russian equivalent of f-bombs about every five or ten seconds conveying the same frustration in a much stronger fashion uh and he was doing it in front of what are um reportedly rows of his dead wagner group mercenaries right like kind of stacked on next to each other fresh off the battlefield uh you know but he was pointing to how these 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 this is the direct concrete result of not getting the ammunition and support from the mark Russian Ministry of Defense that he needs. Um, And it's, it's a dead man. I don't know if if it's fair to say, but possibly the strongest directed criticisms yet against Shoigu and Gerasimov and the Russian Ministry of Defense in general for like, who's really doing the work for this war and who's not. I happen to have just
1: seen those videos in the the opposite order or in the reverse order. And then there's a third one um, that, that we can describe. So in that, The one that you just mentioned for our viewers or our listeners who, uh, who can, who can speak Russian, um, like that's a, that's a monologue that'll go down in history. Um, for those who can't, it's obviously like the images contained in the video, uh, are, are awful. So like, we can't encourage you to like watch things that show like, like fresh corpses. Like they're, it's awful. Like that, that's our disclaimer. But the way that Prigozhin basically goes about it is he actually speaks like, I I, I, I hate to say this, but he actually speaks like a normal person. So unlike, you know, the, the, the odd illusions of like Putin whenever he speaks, or sort of like the bloodlessness of like literally every other bureaucrat in Russia, Prigozhin makes the decision to speak like you would hear any regular adult male obviously like someone who's like super angry and like swearing a lot but he sounds like a regular person and he makes basically several charges in the first video he's basically he's pointing you know while he's saying this to just like fresh corpses and saying these were someone's fathers these were someone's sons what did they die for we came here to do this job we've been doing this job But you, and he then starts to go directly at and Gerasimov to say, you are the people who are, uh, you know, growing rich. You're growing fat in your mahogany offices. Your children are living in luxury, uh, you know, filming YouTube videos as the man, the Russian people have asked them to do, are responsible for. You're responsible for, basically, and then he's, Then he starts to go on to really like, you know, hit home on the theme of artillery. He's saying that we used to get what we needed, but because you're, and then he uses like criminal jargon, which is like hard to explain, but he basically says something effective because you became afraid of my success. You became afraid of Wagner. You started to reduce the amount of artillery that you gave from everything that we needed to 70% to now 10%. So, the casualty figures that we're anticipating are now five times as high. And then, you know, he's doing this as he's pointing to like the fresh corpses. And he just like, he ends the rant by just like repeatedly swearing at Shoigo and Gerasimov directly and saying that, you know, he addresses the commander in chief and he says, this has to be resolved. Otherwise, there's no way that we can continue the fight. In the second video, he basically like does like a less a l- l- he does the same rampo without as many swear words um but basically says we've done the fighting we don't have basically like the support that we need so we're going to leave on May 10th after a victory day um but because no one in the Russian Ministry of Defense or Russian armed forces has yet taken any responsibility for anything what we're going to do is we're going to request uh the orders uh, be given for us to be able to uh withdraw from bakhmut you know and he says there's 45 kilometers of ground that we had to cover we've gone to all but the last two we want to give this up to uh units of russian military uh and russian sort of armed forces writ large we need you you know bureaucrats in chief uh to actually like take command of this because we're going to go deeper into the rear we're gonna lick our wounds and we're gonna wait for the Russian people to call on us once more. And so then he has a third video in which he basically recapitulates all of those three and effectively says the people of Russia have been let down by basically their armed forces. And so by his swearing video is we're going to leave unless you beg us to stay and supply us appropriately. And the third one of giving up basically all pretence of being able to do anything further Goshen is is effectively saying. Only Putin can basically force, uh, you know. His lieutenants to do anything. We've done everything that we could, and we're the only ones to do anything. And if anything, basically, like, uh, fails from here, and we don't even get to conquer. Bakhmut, Then, you know what? Let's not hang this on Wagner. Let's hang this on uh, Russian armed forces.
0: A couple of questions for you here before I go into it. I know I've, uh, we messaged each other before this, and one of the things that struck me about sort of that sequence of videos is Wagner's a bunch of mercenaries, um, you know, war crime happy folks have been given guns and let out of prisons. But the con- the, there's a stark contrast in, in Prigozhin in those videos uh, compared to the people he was criticizing, which is say whatever else you want about him and Wagner, right? There's pretty, that is clear evidence. They are at the sound of the guns. Um, to include to that that longer one without the swearing, um, you can hear artillery going off in the background. Um, and there've been multiple instances where Prigozhin has been filmed at, you know, locations in and around Bakhmut, um, not necessarily the front line, but, you know, close enough to the front line that again, you can hear the sounds of the gun. Pretty stark contrast from Shoigu and Garazimov and Putin who um, don't dare get themselves even within, you know, audible distance of things going boom. So uh, both, both is, you know, like you said, his, his tone, the words used, and then sort of the backdrop. It's a very, pretty clear contrast uh, between him and who criticizing. But so with that, though, like the, the only person he didn't sort of go after by name was Putin, but it it sort of seems like he's he's there's no room left for him to sort of reel this back like this is this is all in um you know his his last will and testament last stand that might become literal i don't know but uh the point is like you can't you can't take that stuff back like that is that is strong direct criticism of the russian military and its leadership so what does putin and or the ministry of defense do with him now, or or do now on their own, and and maybe a separate question for you is: Do we really think that Prigozhin and Wagner would just leave? Is is he trying to bluff to get more resources? Um, and if he does leave, what happens to him then?
1: Yeah. So you know, in so again, so as I was trying to introduce a little while ago, if Putin were you know sort of like. The, the true totalitarian dictator that many make him out to be, you wouldn't be hearing peep out of anyone. There would be very clear, like, message of discipline because no one speaks out of turn. Prigozhin is speaking out of turn, which sort of demonstrates are clear rivalries. There's clear if Prigozhin, and if Prigozhin also had, like, the direct phone line to, to, to Putin, he wouldn't have to do this stuff in public. But he does. We can see that Part of this is him getting him basically standing for something that stands in opposition to, uh, you know, the rest of the establishment beyond Putin. He doesn't criticize Putin because if he criticizes Putin, then, you know, that doesn't make sense. He exists as one of the many courtiers in like the Russian imperial court. So he's not going to basically like bite the hand of like the Tsar. That's not going to happen. But he is becoming a lot more popular, at least on the really sort of tuned in military blogging sites. His latest round of videos have gotten like near universal acclaim on basically like from like the Russian mill bloggers, because for as like, as you noted, he's there when he's saying, you know, like show, go and get a CMO? have been getting fat in their offices. Th- those guys like you never see them break a sweat. Like, Rodrigo's children, like, are in Dubai. Like, those things are real. So he's tapping into that populist strain of, I'm the one doing, like, the fighting, my men are doing the dying, and the, my rivals are basically not helping. And at worst, they're actively trying to prevent Russia from winning because of their fear of looking, uh, looking stupid. So he's definitely going for more popular acclaim. Also, you know, one of the things that he notes in his uh several videos is that when he when he and his like Wagner like private military company came to Ukraine from Africa, which is where he gets most of his money, um, they came out fully kitted, they came out like ready to fight, that they were successful in like their first couple engagements, anticipating that they would continue to be supplied. Obviously, that supply has dwindled up because prigo's uh, you know, and um Grasimov and uh, and Shoigu are responsible for the whole front. They're responsible for everything, not just Bakhmut. And so Prigozhin is also in a position right now where if if his troops get routed because they basically are unable to um, you know, continue the fight, if any Prigozhin without a private army is a guy who has a lot of enemies and his enemies are much more successful at surviving basically like court politics behind the scenes that they are at conducting foreign war. So I think people like Shoigu and Gerasimo would have zero, zero hesitation in killing Prigozhin as soon as they thought it was like the political right move to do. In all of that, Prigozhin is trying to appeal directly to Putin. He's trying to build his base of popularity amongst you know, like the Russian public writ large. But he also needs to make sure that basically his private army survives, basically like the encounter with the Ukrainians. And he makes basically several very clear illusions that the reason that his fighters keep getting chewed up is not because they're bad at fighting, is that they're not getting the stuff that they need. And the illusion being is that the Russian Ministry of Defense would not be uh, too heartbroken If Wagner was actually defeated in the field because that would remove basically one of their chief rivals.
0: Yes. Although, you know, this goes back into a different thing we were messaging about before, you know, but it potentially also removes one of the few forces that's had any notable battlefield success over the the last several months. Uh, But winning, you know, but winning the war in these core politics doesn't seem to sort of enter into the top three of the uh, of the priority playlist here in terms of the special military operation.
1: Yeah, think about it like this. We we don't really know exactly how many Russians have been killed in action. We don't exactly know how many casualties there have been, but casualties, tens of thousands, 200,000, we know just by like observing the empirical reality around us that Putin is willing to accept unlimited casualties. Willing to accept unlimited killed in action. And therefore, like the, his minister of defense, his, um, you know, chair of the general is, uh, you know, chair of the general staff. They're also willing to do that. So, therefore, the idea of these particular troops, which are not under the control of the ministry of defense, but which are supplied by the ministry of defense, both in the equipment and in officers. If they are eliminated. What makes the Wagner fighters any more important than Russian contract service personnel? And that is basically the insight into the court politics. All of those people in the field are going to die, but their deaths at certain moments can have different political effects within the Russian leadership circles. That's essentially the core aspect of the system that Putin has created, is that people's incentives like people like Gerasimov, people like Shoigu, Prigozhin, those incentives are not 100% aligned with each other and they're not aligned with what Putin wants, which is a victory right now.
0: Yeah, so let's actually I had a, 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 one last question for you here and then um see if there's anything else we want to cover before we wrap up, which which is which is Putin, right? You know, we know what what Putin wants, but Among these sequences of events that we just talked about here, um, what uh, my question is, I guess, what Putin doing, Um, because you've had a number of very visible and destructive strikes on those, um, those, those oil supply uh, storage areas, you had a, a direct attack on the Kremlin, which is like you, you, aside from taking a shot at Putin himself, you can't have a more potential, you know, aggressive attack if it was the Ukrainians against a symbol of Russian power. Um, and then in the last 24 hours, we've had Prigozhin essentially call out P- Putin's decision making and leadership via his generals in all but name. Right. But as I'm going back through this, I don't think we've seen Putin make any specific response to them, which, you, you know, you could argue maybe the just pretend the oil fires never happened and, um, you know, let his rivals fight it out. but to. I don't think he he specifically came on camera and made any statements about the attack on the Kremlin which would be potentially a direct attack on his authority. Why do you think we haven't had any sort of direct response from him Is he is he saving it all for the May 9th victory parade, you know, with the you know the one soldier and one tank that's going to come out um or or is his his absence in commenting on this uh, does indicate anything else? You
1: know, when I, when I when I was doing the research for my book, you know, one of the questions was basically what's Putin's like leadership style, like not the mystical, like what motivated him like as a child or like, you know, experiences in East Germany. But when the guy has to make a decision, how does he go about it? And it became clear and sort of like using that to then say, basically, how how does he just understand the concept of reform, like making decisions to basically say, we're going to emphasize X, but not Y. We're going to choose a, but we're going to, like, leave B for the time being. And really the thing that he's done for, like, decades at this point is he brings together, basically, individuals who represent very different points of view, very different policy ideas, whatever it is, and he basically, quite literally, will set them apart, like, across a the table and just have them argue it out. When it comes to economic reform, that sort of, like, makes sense. You just want to see, like, what's the battle of ideas here? So he has people basically duke it out. He then figures out basically like, what are the bits and pieces of each one that he likes? And he then makes a decision that basically increases the power of the Russian state versus alternative actors. So in this regard, what we're seeing right now is, I think, the same thing that he's been doing for decades. He doesn't know if Prigozhin is for real. Because Prigozhin, for all of his bluster, basically still, like, 100% relies upon, like, the Russian state. He doesn't know, basically, like, whether Shoigu and Gerasimov are doing anything actually useful in terms of prosecuting the war. What a lot of leaders would do is basically say, here's what I want, here's basically what we need to do, and try to actually bring government together to fulfill that vision. What Putin does is basically wait until a winner emerges and then take the credit for that. So, the reason I believe we're not actually seeing Putin do anything or say anything is because he doesn't know what to do. And he's just waiting for more time until more information comes through so that he doesn't basically put the wrong foot forward, say something that doesn't turn out to be as defensible in the normal course of politics. It works well enough. When it's not a crisis, when it's a crisis, we ask ourselves, "What Putin doing?"
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that the the tweet you sent me earlier this morning, I think, really sort of captured that, which is like looking at these long lists of crises, and like we're not seeing sort of Putin present in doing something, or even commenting about it. You know, especially with again the the, the attack on the Kremlin is a is a, probably the most direct, you know, middle finger somebody could give to. The power of the russian state there and it was from sergey uh Radchenko saying that putin like it just looks like there's no captain at the ship right nobody's really steering putin is he's not just aloof letting them fight it out he's just aloof not doing anything um and uh noted that between Prigozhin, shoigu um garazimov um petrushev i'm not sure what what incident he was referencing there but the point is you've got all these these guys pursuing different different lines of effort, you know, different interests, different agendas, um, none of which, again, is actually like, you know, winning the war most effectively. It's, you know, me first, maybe the war second. Um, anybody noted all the all these people, these chefs are, will cook some spicy dishes. And, uh, um, and you know, fortunately, and I guess I'm going to probably overdo this metaphor, but when it comes to Russian activity, those spicy dishes are also fairly bloody and destructive. So it's not, necessarily humorous but the you know the larger point is it's these these balls cannot all stay up in the air um at some point and uh this is a really bad time for this to be happening to them if they want to have a solid chance of containing ukrainian counteroffensive. um having your generals and your private military contract or companies at each other's throats when that launches not a great recipe for a uh, a, a good defensive outing at the
1: end of the day this is sort of shows Russian political culture is one in which leaders are successful when they get basically all the different factions of the elite to believe the life is better with them than without them. If they can make basically all those different, you know, elite stakeholders believe that tomorrow looks like today, there's no need to basically think of any alternatives, then the leader looks very strong. This is the basically, you know, the bully pulpit. This is, you know. Um, the informal power of the presidency. When people start to believe the future is unknown and unknowable, the most natural thing to do is try to protect yourself first. And if you try to protect yourself first, you then get situations like this one in which you are working cross-purposes with your rivals because you may want to win, but you may want to do whatever's in the public interest but you certainly don't wanna personally lose. And that sort of political competition, that is really sort of like strangling Russian decision-making at this moment because they're now in a position in which the most success that they've had in basically recent months is threatening to gather his toys and
0: leave. Does tomorrow look better than today? You know will willingly cede a, a territory that you've expended massive amounts of blood and treasure to take. Uh, definitely that tomorrow will not look as good as whatever today is. Um, you know, adding on top of that, does this chaos significantly reduce uh, the Russian military's ability to hold the line anywhere against the conservative counteroffensive? You know, if it can't, that tomorrow is going to look pretty, pretty crappy too. And the, this isn't even to talk about, we have, we've, you've mentioned for months, you know, the the many balls in the air for the Russian economy are due to start coming down because they're they're slapping band-aids on stuff that can only temporarily stay bleeding. So in terms of, you know, whether the they lose Bakhmut lose massive amounts of territory in the counteroffensive, we not even talked about what happens when the the economy comes crashing down, which uh, I think you've mentioned the outlook for the rest of this year and then going into next year, not good for the Russian economy. That tomorrow yes. will not look good at all.
1: And we, we can do that in basically like the next episode, just going over where we are. And now that we've finished, just for example, now that we've finished like the first quarter of 2023, uh, the, Russians, the Russian state is no longer producing um, like aggregate commodity statistics. So the, oil, the basically the oil price cap is working well enough that they're no longer releasing data on basically like the oil money.
0: Yeah, you know, which is their, it's, it's always been one of their main sources of income. So that's thats not a great tomorrow.
1: That's, that's the last and best horse to ride. And if that horse starts going lame, we, we would observe, like, the death spiral of the Russian economy. Um, like, I don't know when it's coming, but based on literally the status quo right now, it will come.
0: And that will be uh, another spicy dish, indeed, um, to look at when that, when that part of the table gets set. So I think, uh, yeah, I think probably we're, we're probably due for a, a look at the what Russian economy is doing here in the near future. So maybe we can target that for the next one. Um, but otherwise, anything else we wanted to cover today? I think we hit all our themes. A drone attack on the Kremlin, like science fiction brought to life. I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to be reduce the severity of it but the the drone attack has generated a number of very interesting uh social media themes to include saying uh you know if if they if Russia was going to release the footage they should have at least released the footage from Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol where somebody like put an underground bomb and collapsed the whole thing um conversely somebody else also created a a video of somebody throwing a battleship at the Kremlin and pieces of the boat like the the rudder and the propellers like flying at a very, very dramatic. Maybe the footage isn't getting out to the Russian public, but it's certainly it's been noted elsewhere.
1: Okay. Attack on Kremlin 23's uh
0: surprise surprise hit of the summer. Indeed. And you know, as you said, there's a non-zero chance they did it to themselves. So who knows what we'll <laughs> what we'll see under that story. But you know, at this point, I you could have freaking flying saucers come down into red square tomorrow. And I would, I would not be surprised. Well, it's after four o'clock on a Friday. So I think, uh, we can both find more relaxing things to do. So I will, we'll bid you I to you. You've all, uh, thank you again for another episode here and we'll keep trying to get these out. I think about once a week for, for the foreseeable future. See how that tempo goes. All right.
1: Happy trails. Enjoy the weekend.
0: All right. You too. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crew Lab community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube, or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.